Samuel, the last of the judges of the Old Testament, was the product of a miraculous birth. When his parents left the temple, Samuel remained behind, where he learned to serve God and to grow in favor with God and man. It was known throughout the nation of Israel that he was a prophet, but he was later rejected in favor of someone who would provide a more temporal salvation to Israel. In all of these ways and many others, Samuel was like our Savior Jesus Christ. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, episode 21, God Will Honor Those Who Honor Him. We will cover the first part of 1 Samuel in these scriptures, chapters 2 through 8, and the first part of the life of the prophet Samuel. As always, if you'd like to email a question to the program, send it to gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Well, we begin the story where we left off last time, uh, where Hannah uh, Samuel's mother has agreed to let him serve God his whole life. So he is probably somewhere between the ages of three and five when she drops him off at the temple. And then that particular year when she and her, when Hannah and her husband Elkanah and their family come up to the temple to worship, then when they leave, they leave Samuel behind. And you probably remember the first story of Samuel. You probably remember this story where he, and I don't know whether his first lessons in serving God were from his parents or from Eli, but he, he was already a faithful lad because um, he's sleeping one night in the temple. And Eli is one of the judges of Israel as well. And so Samuel is his direct protege and he's sleeping in the temple and he's awakened by a voice that says Samuel. And so he, he wakes up and he runs into Eli and he says, here I am. And he does this three times. And each time Eli says, I didn't talk to you. Go, go lie down to sleep. And finally, Eli realizes that, that it's God talking. And so he tells Samuel, he says, this is God talking to you. The next time the voice comes, say, speak Lord for thy servant heareth. So that was the, that was the calling of Samuel as a prophet. And Eli, the it's interesting. That's usually where the story ends. But uh, the the interesting part of the story is that Samuel, being a young child, his first revelation was that Eli was going to be cut off from being both priest and judge, and that his entire family, his whole house, his his line would be wiped out. And so let's talk a little bit about that. The sons of Eli were also priests, and the, the office of priest was intended to be a hereditary one. And it was, I believe, what the Lord had in mind in that was, if someone is faithful, he's likely to be able to teach his, his children, his sons, to be faithful as well. And it, it's obviously not always true. We have plenty of examples of the scriptures where that doesn't hold true. However, uh, I, those are probably the exception, but in the case of Eli, his sons were especially bad. 
and the name the names of his sons were Hophni and Phinehas, and they were two priests. And it says uh, various things about the way that they <clears throat> the way they conducted themselves in the temple and how it was counter to the teachings of God. One of the things that they did was they seized other people's sacrifices. So the the priests were intended to get a small piece of every sacrifice that came through for their sustenance. But they had to make do with part of the shoulder and part of the breast of the meat. And everything else they had to, or they had to wait for the next sacrifice before they could have any more. And what what Hophni and Phinehas were doing, what, oh, and then the other thing they had to do was they had to wait until the, the fat was burned off. So the fat and the organs, some of the internal organs, were the parts of the meat that would be sacrificed to God. And then the family could eat the rest of the meat. So a lot of times we think, oh, these sacrifices, that must have been a big deal to burn up this animal as a sacrifice. True it was, because that animal could no longer be used for reproduction, for raising the size of the herd. But they did get to eat, if not all of it, they did get to eat most of it. And we, when we also, when we read that they had to burn the fat and the organs, we think, oh yeah, those are the parts no one wants anyway. So that worked out well. But the truth is, in those days, they didn't do what we do, which is cut the fat from our meat. And some of you listening may not be in a culture that does this, but in American culture, I've noticed we cut the fat from our meat, and generally it's the undesirable portion. But for the people of Samuel's time, this would have been the most desirable portion. They wanted the fat. That's where a lot of the calories are. And that's a tasty part, and they didn't have the the resistance or the repulsion from eating pure fat that, that we do nowadays. And so the these two sons of Eli would come in while the worshipers were boiling their meat or cooking the meat, seething as they call it, and they would they would ask for their priestly portion before the fat had been cooked away, before the fat had been burnt. And the people knowing the law would say, okay, but let the let us finish our offering to God first. And they'd say, no, we're here for our portion. And if you won't, if you won't give it to us willingly, we'll take it by force. So just hearing that, you think, wow, that's, that's awful. Uh, and they took, not only that, but they took more than, not, they, they didn't just take the Lord's portion and their priestly portion. They also used their meat hooks that, Normally you would you would dip it once and whatever sticks to the hook the first time in, then you can then the priests can keep that. But they would they would keep whatever they wanted, and they were bullies. They used their position as the sons of the pre uh, the chief priest to bully everyone who came through. And even worse, uh, it the scriptures the early chapters of. For Samuel, describe these two sons of Eli as seducing women that came to worship in the in the temple as well. So, let's talk about one of the Ten Commandments that deals with this. And I made mention of this when we were in the book of Exodus, but this is a specific example of what, what we talked about then. And that is the commandment in Exodus 27 to 
not take the name of the Lord in vain. And as I mentioned then, it seems pretty odd that the harshest penalty, now remember, the Lord says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold guiltless him who taketh his name in vain. So, God has basically said, with this one commandment only, you can't be forgiven. And we have in our modern revelation, we have a couple of examples of sins that you can't be forgiven for. One is denying the Holy Ghost if after you've received a, a, a sure witness of the existence of God. And a lot, there is some misunderstanding about what that means, but the point is we have, a, we have an unforgivable sin whose, whose penalty is greater than we can bear. And murder is also called sometimes an unforgivable sin, or at very least it's very difficult, as it describes in the Book of Mormons, it is not easy for someone who has committed murder to receive a forgiveness. But in the Ten Commandments, there's also an unforgivable sin, which is taking the name of the Lord in vain, which is seems really strange. So if we look at that word take, which in that verse is the Hebrew word tisa, a form of, a form of the word nasa, which means to bear, to bear the name of, of the Lord in vain. Well, it can be take. It can be interpreted in the way that a lot of people think of it, is don't use the name of God without a holy use. Don't profane it. It's not my opinion that that is the unforgivable sin. When priests are working in the temple, when anyone is given charge over the work of God, and it is known to others that that person has been charged with the work of God, then that person is bearing the name of God. And if you bear it in vain, you're doing what these sons of Eli did. You're using your position as a priest or your position as a as a call, someone who's been called of God and chosen and set apart for your own personal gain you're using it in vain and there the evidence for that interpretation is in what God tells Samuel he says he doesn't say normally God when he he has a a penalty coming up he says if you don't repent this penalty will come he says to Samuel, Eli is going to be removed, his, his entire house shall fail, and there's no changing it. I, the Lord, have spoken, and it will surely happen, and I'm going to leave him without a branch. And I have sworn unto the house of Eli. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 3. So it's a very harsh penalty, and, the, and it's irrevocable. And that is Samuel's first revelation, and he has to tell it. To Eli, Eli, the next morning realizes he knows that Samuel has been speaking to God during the night, and he wants to hear every word of it. And so he threatens Samuel if he doesn't tell him every word of it. So Samuel does, and Eli is forced to hear that and and deal with it. Eli's sin was in not restraining his sons. Now he did bring it up to him. He said, "Hey, what are you guys doing? This is this is wrong." But then it doesn't the story sort of stops there. It doesn't tell us that he removed them from their place or that he made it impossible for them to keep doing the evils that they were doing. And it's also interesting that the penalties were not given to Hophni and Phinehas. They were not condemned personally. A prophet, another prophet besides Samuel, had appeared before this time and told Eli what was going to happen. 
and they, he didn't appear to Samuel's two sons. He didn't, or he didn't, he wasn't called to talk to them. Same thing, or I'm sorry, to Eli's two sons. And the same thing to, uh, with, with Samuel. Samuel wasn't told to tell this to Eli's sons. He was told to tell it to Eli. And the, con- the condemnation for Eli is just as great. He, he, had, he had the same job that his two sons had, which was to carry the name of God with holiness, and he didn't do it. He didn't exercise the, the difficult task of restraining two children whom he loved. He would rather enable them and make it possible, make it easier for them to sin, even if it meant that the entire congregation of Israel wouldn't trust God. And that's really the point, is that in the, because the, the two sons of Eli were doing this, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 17, it says, The sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Obviously, people are going to stop worshiping at the temple, or at least some of them will, and the rest of them will wonder why they're doing it, if they're being treated unfairly, if they're being robbed when they go. And that's the point of the commandment being an unforgivable one. When you take the name, when you carry the name of God in vain, you are murdering the faith of those in your care. Why did I make such a big deal out of this? Well, this is a theme that that is repeated not only in the lesson today several times, but in the Old Testament as a whole. The main thing that I'm learning this year is that God, we when we read the Old Testament, we see physical death, physical death. God sends Israel to to war, or he kills several of them with plagues, with famine, and physical death is treated almost like it's a light thing, which it isn't. God tells them they cannot kill. But the the object lesson in all of these is that we are we are to learn, we are meant to know how seriously God takes spiritual death. We are meant all of these seeming incongruities exist to drive home the point that spiritual death is so much more important, is so much worse than physical death. So we see spiritual things contrasted with physical things, with with temporal things, constantly throughout the Old Testament. And the spiritual things are always more important. Obeying God is always more important than your life. Which, if you think about it, is true. But they had to learn the lesson dozens of times. They had to have it repeated every few years, every generation at the latest, but every few years, in some cases, every few months. So where did it, where did it repeat? Well, um, first of all, to, to reinforce the similarity that exists between these, these two opposites, spiritual death, physical death, spiritual things, physical things, let's talk a little bit about uh, what, I, what I referenced in the, in the lead-in, which, were, which was 
the fact that Samuel has so many similarities with the Savior. Well, we, we already studied last week that his birth was miraculous, just like Jesus' birth. In fact, it almost seems like 1 Samuel chapter 2 was the template that Luke used to write Luke chapter 2, because the story of the birth of Jesus, how he was left behind at the temple, they have their parallels in the life of Samuel. Samuel was conceived miraculously. He was he was left behind by his parents, um, and the so First Samuel chapter two, Luke chapter two, and then it says it actually says in First Samuel chapter two, verse twenty six, it says these words, which I never whose similarity I never noticed before to Luke chapter two. The child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. Now it seems obvious to me that Luke was citing this verse when he wrote that that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He wanted to show that Jesus was being raised in the same exact way. Jesus Jesus's life was dedicated to God in the same exact way as someone who was the most honored prophet of his time in Israel at a time when the entire nation of Israel, this is unlike Moses, who was also a great honored prophet, at a time when the entire nation of Israel was corrupt. Both their priestly offices and their political offices were corrupted, and they'd fallen away from God. So in other words, at a time of apostasy, there was one man who was dedicated to the Lord his entire life, and that was Samuel. And so Luke is trying to show us by describing the way that Jesus grew up, that he was like Samuel. Then in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, verse 20, it says, And all Israel from Dan, even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. Dan is the, the last tribe of Israel to find an inheritance, and, and they were the farthest from the place where Israel crossed the Jordan River, way in the north. And Beersheba, which was a place where they originally entered from the Sinai wilderness to scout it out. So those are the northernmost and southernmost points of Israel. In other words, whenever you hear from Dan to Beersheba, it means everyone. And there's a there's a parallel in Jesus's life in Luke chapter 4 verse 37 where the fame of Jesus went out throughout the land. So and and again Luke is telling us that that Jesus was a lot like Samuel. What's the point of that? Well, we'll get to we'll get to why that parallel is important. Again, I should say this again because a lot of times we bring up parallels or likenesses of the savior in the Old Testament. And if you already those might be great to show someone who doesn't believe in Christ, hey, all of the scriptures are testifying of Jesus. And that might be great for that purpose, but let's say you already believe in Jesus, then what is the point of finding and recognizing and identifying and cataloging all of these repeated likenesses to Jesus? The point is, each one of them is different. They they highlight an aspect of the Savior's character. In other words, by understanding that likeness, we can understand more about Jesus himself. 
So they're not just, just like the gift of tongues, it's not meant to be um, this, as Jesus, uh, Joseph Smith taught, it's not meant to be this gift that allows someone to speak in a language that is unintelligible. But it's not really from God unless there's someone nearby who can understand that gift of tongues and interpret and reveal wisdom. So if no wisdom is revealed, then that wasn't from God. So in other words, as we, as we find these likenesses of the Savior, we should use them to find out, to learn something new about Jesus. And if we haven't done that, we've missed the point. Well, the first three chapters of 1 Samuel go by, and Samuel's established as a prophet, and then all of a sudden, Samuel disappears from the story. Uh, and I'm getting a lot of these insights, uh, as, I, as I do quite often, from a book called The Hidden Christ by James Farrell. And one of his, so uh, he points out the similarities between the Ark of the Covenant in this next part of the story and the gospel. So the, the Israelites are having problem, problems because of their apostasy, God has withdrawn his protection. They're having problems with the Philistines. The Philistines are conquering them. And the Israelites strike upon the great idea, hey, whenever the, whenever the Ark of the Covenant has been near, we have done great in battle. So let's get the Ark, let's get the ark over here, and then when we have our next battle, we're guaranteed a victory. And they send, who, who do you think they should send for but Hophni and Phinehas to go grab the Ark for them? And of course, they're willing to do it. Um, and if you remember the story of someone steadying the ark, this is a common metaphor that's used both in the, in the Mormon church and elsewhere. When the ark was being moved at one point, someone reached out his hand who hadn't been called to bear the ark, reached out his hand to steady it and was struck dead because he was not authorized to touch the ark. So the ark was extremely sacred. No one was to look in it. No one was to touch it. And these, and they were, Phinehas and Hophni were called upon to carry it, and therefore they weren't struck dead, but they had not received the word of God to bring it to battle. They just had received a request from wicked people who wanted an advantage in, in war, and they responded, and probably there was something in it for them. In any case, uh, the the Israelites rejoiced with loud cries and shouts of victory, and the Philistines nearby were really scared. They thought, oh, the, they knew that from time to time, the armies of Israel were mighty beyond all explanation. And when they heard these shouts, they thought, we're, we're in for it tomorrow. Nevertheless, let's, let's have courage, and we're here to fight a battle. Let's go do it. And they did. Well, God wasn't with the armies of Israel at this point, and the, the Philistines overcame them easily. And they killed Eli's two sons, and they stole the ark and made off with it and took it home and sent it home for a, a trophy of battle. And when word was brought to Eli that this had happened, his both of his sons were killed. Then he fell over backwards and broke his neck and died. The prophecy, and, and God even told him, I'll do it all at once. I will destroy your whole house at once. And God just couldn't have this impurity in the temple. And when that happened, Samuel was the prophet in charge. He was the judge of Israel. 
but the ark was gone. And the the interesting point in the hidden Christ is that we can see a similar arc, if you were, if you will, ARC, a similar story arc to the way the gospel is treated. First, it is given to Israel. Then it is taken away from them and it, and it resides among the Gentiles. But it's a, it is a prick unto them. It is a, an irritation unto them until it comes back to the land of Israel. And so he likens the Ark of the Covenant to the gospel. And he likens these few months that the Ark is missing from the nation of Israel to the entire history of the, of the people of Israel, that the, the gospel will reside with them at first, but they reject it. And then it will reside among the, the people around them. In, in the case of the story, the Philistines, and in the case of the gospel, the Gentiles, and then it eventually will make its way home. So the Ark, they put it first in the temple of Dagon, which is one of the Philistine gods. And in the morning, they find the idol tipped over on his face, and they just think it's a coincidence, so they, they put it up. And then the next morning, he's tipped on his face, and his hand, hands and face are removed. And they realize that, and then huge boils start to infect them, and they have all these diseases, and they realize the Ark is powerful where their God is not, which they always knew. So they send it away. They send it from city to city in the Philistine kingdom. And eventually they give up because everywhere it goes, it causes disease and destruction. And it's a curse to them. So they, and and they're basically brought to believe in the God of Israel, even though they don't repent. Uh, the point the point in the hidden Christ is they they're brought to believe the Gentiles in one, in the parallel version or the, in the literal version, the Philistines, they're brought to believe in God. And then they send the ark back, which is likened unto sending the gospel back, bringing the gospel back to the house of Israel and, and the gathering of Israel. It's an interesting parallel. And the, they, they find two milk cows and they put the ark on a wagon behind them and they say, okay, we'll know, we'll know if God is really God if when they reach the fork in the road, the, the two milk cows take this, take this fork that leads to Israel or if they continue along the straight, straight road. And the two cows never stop. They never deviate from the course. They go right back to the nearest uh, Israelite town, with this, which is called Bet, Bet Chemish. And... The people there look into the ark, and there there's a plague that comes upon them, either a plague or a battle. The Lord it says the Lord smote them. Well, their their entire village is is decimated because of their unfaithfulness in dealing with the ark, and again, there's a there's a parallel there in how the the gospel will originally come in, unto the the house of Israel. And then finally, uh, they bring the ark into into the hands of people who will treat it with respect and with authority. And eventually, Samuel is called and told, "We found the ark; it's back." And then Samuel re-enters the story. And by this time, the Israelites have been oppressed by the Philistines for long enough that they've repented and they've called upon God, 
And Samuel says to them, with the, with, the, with the ark here, we have the power of God. Let's go meet the Philistines in the, in the power of God, and we'll overcome them, and they do. And after that happens, the, the Israelites make a strange request of Samuel. They say, we're looking around at the nations around us, and they all have kings. And their kings fight their battles, their kings protect them, their kings are powerful. And we want to be like them. And these, it, I'm not just m- making a metaphor as to what they were saying. These are exactly their words. We want to be like the nations around us in having a king, which seems like a pretty silly reason. Samuel doesn't take this well because God has not revealed to him that there should be a king. So he goes to God with this and he, and he says, we can presume he says he feels rejected because God says they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. And by that answer, we know this was a wicked desire on behalf of the people. And again, there's a parallel here. There's not only a parallel in the story of the ark or the gospel, leaving the nation of Israel and coming back. There's a parallel in between Samuel and the Savior, because once again, Samuel is like the Savior in the fact that the people of Israel wanted an earthly powerful king rather than the spiritual deliverance that Samuel represented. Isn't that an interesting and and complex parallel between Jesus and Samuel that he represented spiritual salvation, but the nation of Israel didn't want it. They wanted a king instead. They had a judge and a prophet in one man, and they rejected it. And they rejected, and God said, you didn't reject me, or you didn't reject, they didn't reject you, they rejected me. Much the way that later on, when they rejected Christ, they were rejecting God and Christ. They were rejecting all salvation. And so here we have this temporal, and uh, this, this interplay between temporal salvation and spiritual salvation that Israel will choose the temporal things every time because they have not learned how important it is, that the relative importance of staying spiritually connected to God rather than physically safe and secure. They think it's more important to be protected in battle when actually it's more important to be spiritually protected and righteous. And those are the lessons that Samuel would have taught them had they listened to him. So God tells Samuel to give them uh, an an indication of what kind of person would be their king. So Samuel says he's going to be, if you have a king, listen, here's here's something to think about before you make up your minds. If you have a king, he's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters to be his servants. Your sons are going to be in his armies. Your sons are going to be surrounding him, serving him. He's going to have, he's going to put taxes on you that are grievous to be born and he's going to press them into his army, and they won't come back. He, he lays before them all the negative things that happen when there's a king, and, and that's if he's righteous, and he probably won't be forever. You probably won't always have a righteous king. This lesson, this lecture, they, and they reject this, and they press for a king anyway, and that presages 
the rejection that Israel will have of Jesus Christ. But this, this lecture that he gives them, in my mind, called up something from the book of Judges that I didn't make mention of at the time. But this is the perfect lesson for it. And that is, the story of Gideon has two parts. You may remember that Gideon was one of the judges we talked about, how he was a deliverer. He was one of the cycle of... The cycle of the book of Judges was similar to the cycle of the Book of Mormon, and Gideon was one of the deliverers. And you may remember Gideon's famous for uh, reducing the size of the army that had sent him. So God, the Midianites had conquered Israel, and, and God calls Gideon to be the savior of his people. And so Gideon sends out the war signal, the battle cry, and people respond, and he has a, a force of 32,000 men. And God says, that's too many. Tell anyone who's afraid to go home. And he does. And he's left with only 10,000. And God says, this is still way too many. Here's what we're going to do. Take them all to this stream, and they're all going to get a drink. And anybody who puts their face down in the water and lies down on the ground and puts their face in the water and laps with their tongue like a dog, keep them aside. And everyone else who gets on their knees to drink from the water, then you can send them home. And there were 300 people left. And the reason God did that, he said, I don't want Israel to think that they deserve the credit for this victory. I want them to know that I was the one fighting this battle. So I'm going to win this battle over this, this huge host with only 300 men. And you may remember that Gideon's plan was to put lamps inside of pitchers so that when they broke the lamps, all the lights would turn on at once, rather than these this gradual lighting of lamps. All the lights would turn on at once, as if a, an army had suddenly come in upon them. And then, in their left hand, they'd hold their pitchers with the light in there. And in their right hand, they had trumpets. And they blow the trumpets, and they say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And God manipulated this in a certain way, in such a way that when the Midianites woke up and had this noise and light around them, they, they started killing each other. And that's when Gideon called the rest of the armies that had been, that were nearby and said, now we can pursue them. We've already routed them. So that was a miraculous salvation. Well, Gideon was seen as such a hero after this. They renamed him Jerubal and they they gave him a new name, a new honorable name, and they also tried to make him a king. And he said, I won't rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. He rejected their offer of being a king. But when he died, Israel immediately went back to their, it says they, they started worshiping Baal right away. So the whole time Gideon was alive, nobody dared to worship these idols that surrounded them. But as soon as Gideon died, they did. And also as soon as Gideon died... One of his sons said, well, he, 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 this particular son, Abimelech, he remembered the offer that had been made to Gideon, which was not only rule over us, but thou shalt be our king and thy, thy son and thy son's son also. And Abimelech's name means the son of the king, or my father is the king. And Abimelech said to himself, I want to be the king. His Gideon had many wives, and so one of them was in Shechem. And Abimelech, because his uh, mother 
was separated from the other mothers of Gideon's children, he had a lot of allies there in the city of Shechem. And he said, I can, I'm, because I'm a son of Gideon, I can be in charge of everyone. I can be made king. But we've got to remove, is it better for, and one of the things he said was, should, is it better for 70 of the sons of Gideon to rule over Israel or for one person? Let's censure all the power in me. And so he took all of his half-brothers and he killed them all in one day with the help of the men of Shechem. He, and they apparently they all were in one place. And that's the kind of evil man that Abimelech was. But he missed one. He missed one of his half-brothers, Jotham. And this is just such an interesting allegory, we'll call it. It's similar to the allegory that Jacob in the Book of Mormon gives us of the of the olive vineyard, or of the, yeah, the olive vineyard. Well, Jotham, when he sees that all of his half-brothers have been killed, he stands up on a high place, almost like Samuel the Lamanite, and he says to the men of Shechem, I'm going to tell you what kind of person is a king over you. And he gives them the allegory of the bramble. And this, and this can be found in Judges chapter 9. And this is the second part of the story of Gideon that I was referring to. He says, the trees got together one day and they decided they wanted a king. Well, who did they ask? They asked the most noble tree among them, which was the olive tree. And the olive tree is venerated in Israel because they get so many useful things out of it. They get fruit, they get oil, and they get wood. And the olive tree says, no, I've got too much work to do. I'm an important tree. I've got olives to produce. So I, I don't have time to be your king. Well, they go next to the fig tree. And the fig tree says, shall I leave my figs? My figs are important. Everyone needs them. I'm not going to be the king over the trees. And so the trees are getting desperate by this point, and they go to the vine. And the vine says, am I going to leave the sweetness of my grapes that make men merry and provide food for everyone? And I'm going to rule over the trees? Why would I do that? And finally, the trees are left with no one, and they go to the bramble. And the bramble says, all right, if you want me to be your king, then I will. But if you don't want me to be your king, then let fire go out from the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. By which it means, and if you imagine yourself a member of a community of trees, there would be nothing worse that could come upon you than fire because it indiscriminately kills everyone. And what Jotham was saying was, if you try to frustrate somebody that you've chosen as your king, you're going to choose the worst among you, first of all. And then if you try to frustrate that person and take any of his power or limit it in any way, then you, have, you will have unleashed a force that will destroy everyone. And Jotham's final curse was, so let fire, if you've dealt justly with all of me and my half-brothers, then good luck to you. But if you haven't, then let fire go out from Abimelech and devour the people of Shechem. And let fire come out from the people of Shechem and devour Abimelech. And that is what happened. And, that, and if you're noticing a parallel here between what happened, uh, what, what he's promising and what Abinadi promised to wicked King Noah that however you treat me will be the way you treat it, and they burned him with fire. Well, 
then you're right on the money because Abimelech rules for a while, but he doesn't inspire any loyalty. And when there's a rebellion, he starts slaying his own people. And he and a lot of them take refuge in one of the towers inside the city. And rather than negotiate with them or conquer the men and save the women, he just stacks up branches around it and burns it and kills a thousand men and women and children. And then he goes to another city that is rebelling against him and he's going to do the same thing. And a woman throws a rock on his head. So he devoured, fire went out from him to devour them literally and figuratively. And then they were the cause of, his own people were the cause of his death. And this allegory of the bramble, this idea that the worst among you is going to be your king follows the Israelites for the rest of the Old Testament. And that's why I wanted to go back to the book of Judges and bring it up. And it's that chapter, the chapter nine, maybe even eight and nine of Judges is worth reading because it is so apt. Almost every time a king is chosen, it's going to be somebody who fits the description of a bramble. And fire is going to go out as soon as that, as soon as somebody tries to limit the power of that king, fire goes out. And the cedars of Lebanon were famous for being large trees that, that were very expensive. They were really important to commerce because they could be used for large construction pro- projects. And that's rare in, in this particular part of the world. You know, here in the United States, we have large pine trees. We have we have a lot of forests that can be used for construction. But there, the cedars of Lebanon are the only trees that fit that description. And so that was not one of the trees that was used earlier in the allegory as being considered for a king. But it's still precious, and it still burns. And in other words, all the precious citizens, all of your precious things, all of, all of the things that you hope the king would protect, fire will go out from that king. And fire is an indiscriminate force when it's set loose in a forest. And so figuratively, there are going to be forces you can't control that are going to be unleashed in your community, in your civilization, by having a king. A powerful lesson, and I, I can't imagine that Jotham, whose name means uh, God, Jehovah, is perfect. I can't imagine that he wasn't inspired of God in, in telling this, this parable, this allegory of the bramble. And it's very similar to what Samuel says, and I imagine Samuel made some reference to it as well, and especially that Samuel was aware that Jotham had made that teaching. So Samuel makes this teaching, but they still reject it. And before too long, uh, Samuel anoints Saul, which whom we'll, we'll study in an, in an upcoming lesson, anoints Saul to be king. And as happens many times, Saul starts out a wonderful man and a good king and is corrupted by power. He starts out humble and he is made prideful. But the this particular parallel is brought to a close by the fact that Samuel has made his warning. So Samuel, a likeness of the Savior, 
is raised in Israel, becomes a prophet, becomes well-known and well-respected, and then the gospel is taken away from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. The ark is taken away from the Jews and, and resides for a time with the Philistines. When it comes back, what they want is temporal salvation. What they want is physical salvation. They want a mortal king. And instead, what they had offered to them was eternal salvation, spiritual salvation, a savior, a prophet. And they rejected it. So, right in these, just in these few chapters, just in chapters two through eight of First Samuel, a powerful lesson and a powerful prophecy about what will happen when we reject God. And when we think, and this is, this is the lesson that is driven home again and again by the Old Testament. If there's no other lesson you learn from the Old Testament, learn this one. When we think that physical, temporal salvation is the most important, then God has another lesson for us, which is as important as it feels to stay alive, to protect our physical selves, to have rain, to have food, to have protection, that's nothing it, it is important, but it's nothing next to the necessity to have spiritual salvation, to have righteousness, to listen to the prophet, and to honor the Savior. This is the lesson that we learn in Samuel for, from the prophet Samuel and in the book of 1 Samuel, chapters 2 through 8. I pray that as we're studying the rest of this year, as we're studying the Old Testament, we can remember it. We can remember that our physical, as important as our physical lives and the details of our physical lives are, and maybe even the wealth that we surround ourselves with or the comfort we live in, our health, all of the physical details that we concern ourselves with so much, as important as those things are, I pray we can remember they're nothing next to the health of our spiritual selves, the amount of righteousness we can lay claim to, and that is nothing next to how quick we are to enlist the Savior on our side. Because, as, as King Benjamin said, we're unprofitable servants. So if we give heed to the spiritual aspect of life and the spiritual aspects of the gospel, and if we invite the Savior into our lives then we can save our lives spiritually, which is infinitely more important than saving them physically. As Jesus said, whoso shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. This is what he meant. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.